Welcome back, listeners, to Talking PFAS podcast. This is season three. If you missed last week's discussion, I encourage you to have a listen. It's an interview with Lisa Marie Toms from the Queensland University of Technology. Lisa has been involved in the Human Biomonitoring Program in Australia, which monitors a range of contaminants in the blood of the general population. The strength of our work on PFAS is our Human Biomonitoring Program and the fact that we have consistently been collecting these samples, which has enabled us to look back in time to a time before there was awareness, community or government awareness of PFAS. Lisa has also been awarded a grant from the NHMRC to continue her research. Now to today's interview. Discussion I had with Dr. Paul Birch, who is the Science Director from Land and Water CSIRO in Brisbane. Well, it's a, it's a significant global challenge for, for the reasons we've talked about. I mean, PFAS has unique properties. It's been ubiquitously distributed throughout the environment. So obviously firefighting foams is just one uh, component. And one of the reasons it ends up so ubiquitous in the biosolids that we talked about earlier is because it's leaching from a whole host of products, fabrics. And, and as I mentioned, those unique properties, I mean, it's some people call it the forever, as you know, contaminant or forever chemical. And um, it doesn't stay where you put it. It doesn't stay where you put it. You're absolutely correct. It's, it's quite mobile compared to many other uh, organic contaminants. Hi, Paul. Thanks for talking with me today for Talking PFAS podcast and the Queensland State Library Oral History. How are you? I'm very well. Thank you, Kayleen, for inviting me to participate. For the listeners that are unfamiliar with the CSIRO and what your organisation does, what is the CSIRO's role when it comes to environmental contaminants like PFAS? Well, Kayleen, we have a very broad group of scientists that actually work on a whole host of contaminants, so that would be organic contaminants like PFAS, all the way through to pesticides and metals and metalloids, as well as radionuclides. How long has the CSIRO been operating in Australia, and particularly in Queensland? Uh, Well, CSIRO has been operating since, in the current form, 1926. They were in Queensland at that time. So they're a well-established organization here? Well-established and actually over 100 years of research cutting across just about every area that uh, is relevant to Australians. And are you funded by the government? We are funded by the government, but we get about um, 50 to 60 percent of our funding through an appropriation uh, to the organization, and the rest we actually generate annually uh, around specific projects. And that could be funded by government agencies, uh, both at the state uh, as well as the federal level, uh, Mm -hmm. but also industry uh, as well as NGOs. So how long has the CSIRO been uh, working on PFAS? We've been working on PFAS for some time now. When did CSIRO first become aware of PFAS chemicals being an emerging contaminant? Well, the big turning point for the whole scientific community, and I know my colleagues in CSRO really took notice as well, it would be 2001. There was a, quite a, a novel paper that was published uh, by a former colleague of mine at, at the time in the U.S., and now he's in Canada, looking at global distributions of PFAS chemicals in wildlife. And what they discovered was there were concentrations in wildlife, even in very remote areas like Alaska, uh, as well as the polar cap. So what was that researcher's name? Yeah, John Giese is his name. Uh, So John was one of the first from really looking at the environmental implications. Now, of course, before that, there was some human health work going on, but that's not an area that we actually pursue in CSIRO. Before 2001, there was work on human health? 
There was uh, some work on human health uh, in terms of blood um, measuring yeah. blood levels and so. I on. think that was 3M, maybe. Oh, yeah. yeah, we won't get into that. Um, is CSIRO concerned about this group of chemicals? Uh, we're concerned about a whole host of chemicals, and so of course PFAS is a relatively unique class of compounds. Uh, but we've been looking at organic and inorganic contaminants. Um, for decades now, and a lot of that capability actually sits in land and water. So we have a lot of environmental chemists and toxicologists uh, in land and water at CSIRO, but we also have expertise in other places in the organization as well. So how does PFAS compare to other contaminants in the Australian environment? Well, PFAS as an organic contaminant has a, a number of very unique features uh, that you probably have heard through your, your discussions with others. Uh, so one, of course, is the fluoride-carbon bond is one of the strongest bonds known to chemistry, which is, uh, you know, means that this idea of it being persistent in the environment is, is quite significant. Um, so that, that's one. The other is it's uh, got very unique properties. Uh, so it's actually a surfactant, which means it's what we call hydrophobic and hydrophilic. So that's water-hating and water-loving at the same time. And when you say water-hating, that means it's lipid loving and just the opposite for the hydrophilic it would be lipid hating and so that's quite unique in terms of uh, or organic contaminants lipid is fat right yeah that's correct and part of the problem with really understanding the implications of pfas as a chemical was these unique properties i should just say the third uh, very unique property is that it's partitioned very strongly to interfaces and so Typically, what's done when a lot of organic contaminants, usually the relative partitioning in biological systems, so uptake and as well as toxicity and partitioning to tissues, is typically associated with lipid tissues. Can you just explain interface as well? So, so the interface is at the surface. And so if you think of a raindrop, for example, the PFAS might be uh, very much partitioned to that interface as it would to just about any interface. So it's very, very strongly partitioned in the interface. Do you mean media when you say interface? Is that the uh, same thing, like soil media? Is any surface. So yes, it could be soil, it, it could be this table, it, and that's why it's such an effective uh, stain preventer, for example. And it loves to adhere to glass and metal, correct? Yeah. It adheres very strongly to the... surface, so <laughs> yeah, absolutely correct, yeah. yeah. But that, that's this idea of its uh, very low surface tension, which makes it very, very strongly bound to interfaces. So surface, an interface is just at the surface of whatever it is. It could be a liquid, it could be a solid. What can you tell our listeners about CSIRO's work regarding PFAS so far? Well, we've been mainly involved in looking at the fate transport of PFAS contaminants in the environment. And, and really what we're interested in is developing models to predict the transport, developing models to predict how it's partitioned in soil, you know, how it moves in groundwater, and then how it's taken up by um, ecoreceptors. So again, we don't really work uh, in the human health uh, domain, but we do work with ecoreceptors, which would be organisms in the environment that might be impacted. Such as? Could you give us an example of some of those ecoreceptors? Oh, they could be anywhere from fish uh, to microorganisms to birds. So it's really looking at a whole host of ecoreceptors. Even earthworms, right? Yeah, earthworms are a big one. And so I've done a lot of work, for example, uh, in my career looking at earthworms as an as a important ecoreceptor, mainly because they, as you know, live in the soil, but they also ingest soil. And then chickens eat the earthworms and then produce the eggs. Yeah, that's right. And, and you may know that one of the major PFAS sources in food is actually eggs. 
Because of the protein, right? Because PFAS love proteins, correct? Yeah, that's correct. Where again, uh, traditionally the paradigm of organic contaminants was normally thinking about those organic contaminants partitioning to lipids, which would be the fat tissues. Mm. Whereas PFAS mm. has very unique properties in that it partitions to uh, proteins. Knowing that PFAS, I mean, I know this is probably out of your area, but knowing that PFAS is in our food chain, right? The general population is expected to get exposed via the food chain. That's what NRICs have said in 2016. They did a document that said the general population's major source would be contaminated water or contaminated food. Yeah, that's correct. So how concerned should we be about eating protein food sources? Well, it's, again, put everything in perspective. And, you know, there's still a lot of work that needs to be done. And, again, this is getting into the human health domain. Well, it's it's kind of exposure. So we do work on exposure. Yeah, I know CSIRO work a lot on exposure. So that's why I'm asking, but we'll come back to that. Just then I asked about CSIRO's work regarding PFAS. Have you finished talking about that? No, I mean, so the fate and transport is one thing, but how that really fits into uh, assessing risk. So it's a risk definition and then that leads to risk mitigation. So we do a lot of work in the remediation space. So at the parliamentary inquiry in 2018, um, you said that CSIRO is not doing any research into human health impacts. That's correct, isn't it? Yeah, that's correct. So how exactly is the CSIRO able to assess the risk definition and the risk mitigation if they're not looking at the human health effects? Yeah, so we can use various measures of exposure. Uh, And so we have chemical techniques, uh, for example, that uh, look at uh, how bioavailable these compounds would be. The bioavailability would be uh, obviously associated with risk. Okay, so maybe there's a different risk definition that I'm thinking in my head to what you're describing. So how do you describe the risk work that you've done? Because you're not talking about risk to human health, are you? No, but it can lead to exposure pathways. So, so one of the things, so, so the importance of ecoreceptors um, is that while PFAS might have effects on human health, a lot of contaminants actually uh, oftentimes are not very virulent in terms of toxicity to humans, but they are to ecoreceptors. And so think of DDT, for example. DDT uh, apparently has very little effect on human health, at least uh, the data would suggest, whereas it was a very potent contaminant, of course, uh, particularly for birds and and other egg-laying organisms. And so, uh, you know, that's an example of where those of us interested in how it affects ecosystems are quite interested in in ecoreceptors. But the other is food chain transfer, as you've mentioned uh, earlier, right? And so looking at trophic transfer of contaminants up a food chain, and that then provides pathways to exposure to humans. Yeah, so we would call them secondary exposures, wouldn't we? We would call the firefighting foam that's been used in Australia, we'd call that a primary source of exposure? Uh, If it's in drinking water, for example? Yes, if use of the firefighting foam has affected the groundwater and contaminated land in certain areas of Australia, that's a primary source of PFAS? That would be for drinking water exposure, but other exposure pathways would be trying to understand how it goes from, say, uh, plants to food to uh, human exposure. Yeah, and I've done some work in the podcast and my last episode was looking at secondary exposures in wastewater treatment plants, landfill leachate, biosolids that then 
might be mixed as a sewerage sludge and go back to agriculture in compost or recycled water. There's researchers in Australia doing work now on PFAS in recycled water and the impacts of that for irrigation. So these areas don't seem to be getting much attention at the moment. Do you think they deserve more? Oh, absolutely. And I, and I think um, one of the things you mentioned, the biosolid uh, pathway is a very important one. We've seen that for a number of uh, recalcitrant contaminants that end up in through the wastewater treatment plant, partitioned to the solids. And in many places of the world, about 60% of biosolids are used in agricultural systems, much less here in Australia. But uh, in Europe and, and North America, for example, about 60% of biosolids are land applied in agricultural systems. And so looking at how they might move up the food chain is quite important to defining human exposure. When I first arrived, I was uh, looking at that pathway for uh, manufactured nanomaterials, and I was told that it was less than what I would have been used to in North America uh, and, and Europe. I thought a lot more was uh, put into landfills, but I could be wrong. It, it could be regional. Yeah, because it would depend on the state regulations. Well, state regulations just plus the economics of it. Typically, where it's generated uh, needs to be close, relatively close to agricultural systems or else the economics isn't right for using it as a fertilizer source. It certainly warrants further investigation, doesn't it? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, And actually, there's, um, the waste sector is very worried right now about PFAS ending up in their lap, so to speak. They didn't cause it, but it ends up there via the waste stream. They can't even tell if it's in coming into their landfills. You can't test everything coming in via a truck. So do you think PFAS in the waste industry requires more attention by the Australian government? Well, certainly, I, you know, the first thing that uh, has to be sorted out is what are the risks and what are the concentrations that we really need to be focused on, and, and we just simply don't know. And so what you have is uh, regulatory bodies across the world, really, setting levels that might be ultra-low relative to actual risk, and we just don't know that. And that's one of the reasons why it's important to understand fate, transport, and exposure pathways, and then, obviously, what are the concentrations that really provide uh, substantial risks to human health. And certainly, if you have localized, highly contaminated groundwater, you know, that's pretty straightforward. But when you get into these uh, far field, as we would call it, uh, uh, much lower concentrations, you know, we just don't really have enough information. But you're absolutely correct. I mean, and in Queensland, you know, where leachate from landfills is uh, a big concern uh, mm-hmm. in terms of PFAS, because it's, it's just about everywhere. And I was at the clean-up conference in Adelaide at the end of last year, and this particular area was getting a lot of attention. But there were sessions that I wasn't allowed to report on. So there is definitely a lot of focus on this waste area. That's why I'm saying this area seems to be hotting up a little bit, but I don't think anyone knows what to do with it. Well, that's right. And look, the whole thing about how science informs policy is that you identify these research gaps that really need to be Uh, filled to get a a full understanding of the actual uh, situation. In this case, we'd be looking at risk and and what are the ultimate human health risks that you're interested in, but even the ecological risks. So again, I go back to my eco-receptors and ecosystem health. A perfect example is you can think of copper. Humans are essentially not affected by copper, but aquatic organisms, for example, are sensitive to copper at very, very low concentrations. Do you think this ESIRO will do further work on these, I call them secondary pathways, these waste industry mm-hmm. ones? Do you think CSIRO will do some work looking at the secondary sources of PFAS in Australia? Oh, yes. We definitely are looking at you know, the total picture in terms of potential sources 
particularly those that, that then do get into uh, looking at uh, how these materials cycle through the environment and potentially are taken up by organisms. Because I also know that residents, right, that live in communities where they've got high levels of PFAS in their blood, they've got many concerns, but one of their concerns is also, well, where do I get my food from now? Because we know that if PFAS is in the meat, it's still allowed to be traded. There's no international regulations to stop PFAS in meat being traded. Uh, That's what the um, Department of Primary Industries has told me. Hmm. So they want to limit their exposure but they're scared to even go shopping because they don't know where to get their food from. Yeah, look, this is a real issue, not just with PFAS, but for a whole host of uh, organic contaminants. Um, you know, they, again, partition to lipid tissues typically, as I mentioned. In, in the case of PFAS, it's quite unique in the sense that it partitions um, more to proteins. But either way, we're being exposed through food sources. The thing about it is that there's 2,000, uh, over 2,000 chemicals every year, that uh, new chemicals that come onto the market globally. You're not talking 2,000 new PFAS chemicals, you're just talking 2,000 general chemicals. Yeah, that's right. And so just trying to get your head around what that means in terms of potential fate, transport, and toxicity is a real challenge, right? Absolutely. So we talked about CSIRO's work with exposure pathways, fate, and transport. I know there's more that you're doing. What's the other areas that you're doing work with PFAS? Yeah, so remediation is another area. So that's really looking at how do you mitigate risk and how do you think about remediation strategies. Uh, But it's, of course, again, because of the properties of PFAS and the unique properties of PFAS, that's a real challenge compared to a lot of contaminants we've worked with in the past. Uh, but it's certainly an area that's, that's quite active in, in CSRO's research. The other is uh, really looking at measurement because that's been a real challenge is the analytical measurement of PFAS. So in the labs? Yeah, that's correct. So actually uh, thinking about concentrations in groundwater are pretty straightforward, but when you get to more complex media, the methods are still uh, not really well worked out, and you can look at disparities in data that's actually being generated by m- multiple investigators looking at the same samples. And so this is uh, very problematic. And yeah, so it's, it's analytically, it's very, very challenging. So, so CSRO has partnered with the National Measurements Institute and UQ, and they're really looking at measurement techniques and, and new measurement techniques uh, for PFAS compounds in a whole host of, of different media. Are you talking about destruction pathways as well? Are you looking into what's the best destruction methods? You know, if you filter out... PFAS using GAC, you've got to do something with the GAC. If you use resins, you can reuse them. But what do you do with the concentrate? Yeah, I mean, it's a real challenge, right? So, so you're right. Destruction is going to be very important. But right now, thinking about economic destruction pathways uh, for the volumes of contaminants that we're actually looking at in terms of PFAS, uh, you may know there's over 4,700 uh, PFAS chemicals. Uh, even though three are the major focus, there's there's over 4,700. Uh, so so there's a lot we don't know about these compounds. And you're absolutely correct. So isolating them in large volumes means you have to put it somewhere. And, and this has been a real challenge because there's really good methodologies for partitioning PFAS in a way that it's, uh, it's not environmentally... Um, significant, so it's benign, relatively benign. So, so the REMBIND uh, technology that uh, was developed at CSRO, for example, what it demonstrates is that uh, over a thousand years, you know, the PFAS is uh, stable uh, through that technology. At the um, parliamentary inquiry in 2018 at Canberra, in your opening remarks, 
you said as Australia's national science agency, CSIRO's mission is to address the most significant challenges facing Australia. We see PFAS as one of those challenges. So why do you call it significant? Well, it's a, it's a significant global challenge for, for the reasons we've talked about. I mean, PFAS has unique properties. It's been ubiquitously distributed throughout the environment. So obviously, firefighting foams is just one uh, component. And one of the reasons it ends up so ubiquitous in the biosolids that we talked about earlier is because it's leaching from a whole host of products, fabrics. And, and so it is ubiquitous. And as I mentioned, those unique properties mean it's, some people call it the forever, as you know, contaminant or forever chemical. And it doesn't stay where you put it. It doesn't stay where you put it. You're absolutely correct. It's, it's quite mobile compared to many other uh, organic contaminants. Have you done any other personal work on PFAS, or is all your work to do with PFAS with CSIRO? Uh, I'm not personally working on PFAS. It's other scientists within CSIRO that are doing the work on PFAS. But I, I have worked on organic contaminants in the past, uh, the chlorinated solvents and the bromated solvents, for example. Mm-hmm. Uh, which at the time were considered intractable contaminants. What does that mean? Intractable, uh, just very, very difficult to solve the problem, as we talked about earlier. And it's because they're they're not easily bro- broken down by uh, microorganisms, although the chlorinated solvents, we, we did find organisms that could break them down. There's some emerging uh, evidence that uh, there are some microorganisms that might be breaking down some of the PFAS chemicals. It's still early stages, and it's not clear. But the fact that there's some evidence emerging is, is actually heartening because that allows the potential development of bioremediation strategies, which then allows for in-situ remediation of the nature you were talking about before. Mm-hmm. So again, it's very early stages, but it's uh, encouraging to see uh, that some microorganisms seem to be actually breaking down uh, the PFAS chemicals. Although I should say that one of the problems as well is transformation of some of the precursors actually ends up in the three primary uh, contaminants. Uh, that and that's what's happening in wastewater treatment plants. Yeah, that's correct. The actual treatment process itself, they think, is a perfect transformation process transformation to those precursors. Yeah, that's correct. Yeah. yeah. What is Australia doing right, right now, to manage PFAS? Uh, what I see is um, there's much greater openness than I than in the earlier days. And, and so, for example, uh, CSRO has been partnering with um, Defense and really looking at uh, uh, trying to do some research for them, not only in soil and groundwater, but also connecting them with uh, what's going on in the defense community in the U.S., just so that we have better exchange of information, uh, because this, again, is a global problem. It's about 400 defense communities in the U.S., I believe. Uh, That could be. I'm sure it's a significant number. Uh, The whole defense complex um, is historically not only PFAS, but many different contaminants um, have been associated. Yeah, historical legacy contaminants. Um, With this work with defense, I understand that uh, at the inquiry you mentioned that you are receiving some funding from defense, like you're contracted to them. How do you manage CSIRO's reputation with, with that funding? Yeah, the reputation is, is, is always a risk, right? Uh, managing reputation around these things. We've, in our work with the gas uh, industry, we set up this independent uh, governance structure called the Gas Industry Social Environmental Research Alliance, which uh, actually protects uh, the independence, you know, in terms of perception. It's more, more perception because as an organization, we don't get involved in research that where we would not be free to uh, publish the results. 
I mean, outside of industrial type secrets, if we're working with industry, but but in terms of environmental research, we're you know we're we're open and transparent. Uh, and you're not looking at human health effects because you're looking at environmental effects of this contaminant. Is that the work you're doing for defence? Yeah. So there's a package of work. Uh, one of the big projects right now is actually looking at uh, PFAS chemicals in cement, cement and asphalt because um, this is not only a defense challenge, but it's also for airports because mm. they have to scrape the very surface of runways uh, to restore them from time to time. And the very surface uh, components of those surfaces are contaminated with, with PFAS. And, yeah. and where do you take that rubble? Yeah, so it's really looking at uh, uh, what form it's in and you know, doing the kind of work uh, of actually looking at is it mobile from that system, or is it uh, is it sequestered? You know, these are the major questions that we're really uh, addressing. It's very early stages. The project's just getting started. Uh, also, at the parliamentary inquiry at the Canberra hearing in 2018, you said that there's been very little focus on the source term, which is the soil contamination, and globally that's true as well. So, how do you define source term? Yeah, so source term is really getting, uh, trying to get a handle on where it actually came from and, and what the mass was, or the actual amount that was part of that source. Okay, that's what source term means. It's not really exposure pathway, it's talking about a mass. Yeah, that's correct. So part of the uh, challenge there with organic contaminants is that what we measure in, in the dissolve phase is, is a small part typically of the total inventory. So because these uh, chemicals partition to surfaces and interfaces, and in the case of PFAS, it's more mobile, so it's partitioning um, uh, less than, say, a lot of traditional organic contaminants, which partition very strongly. But once it's partitioned, it's really hard to get an estimate of how much was actually there, and it just bleeds mm-hmm. off uh, over time. And that, and that was the issue with the, with the chlorinated solvents, for yeah. example. Okay, and you also said that the source term, where the PFAS is coming from, should be a high-priority research area. Is that going to be a high-priority research area for CSIRO? Uh, it really depends on projects that we get funded. You know, so, so that would be really trying to take a comprehensive uh, examination of a contaminated site and, and really try to get a handle on uh, all the potential sources because, as, as you know, uh, some contaminated sites obviously are quite concentrated and it's quite clear what, what most of the source term was. So, for example, firefighting foams. So obviously, these chemicals are ubiquitous, mm. so they're coming from multiple sources. And they in stormwater, they're in a domestic laundry water. Yeah, well, that's correct. In landfill leachates, mm. it's the same same deal as we were talking about before. A lot of different waste goes into a landfill, and very little work is done in actually characterizing what is the concentration coming in, and then how does that compare to the leachate concentrations? So it's kind of doing a mass balance. What would it take for the CSIRO to prioritise these secondary sources as well, to advise regulators? That's what science does. You said it helps regulation. What would it take for CSIRO to investigate these areas? Would you need government to mandate you to do that, or can you just choose to do it? Uh, well, we, we could be mandated, so that's that's one pathway in terms of how we respond and, and do research. Uh, but the other is that there would be interest in, in someone funding a project to actually examine that. 
And so we'll, we'll have to see where this goes in terms of uh, leachate concentrations uh, nationally, mm -hmm. uh, the concern uh, relative to those concentrations. Mm -hmm. And again, a lot of it is that we're still in very early stages of understanding are these low concentrations really having a, uh, mm -hmm. negative impacts. So they're down the priority list because you've got these other major source, major contamination areas that need attention first. That's correct. I mean, in terms of the highest priority, it's going to be these hot spots, right, where, where the source term typically is known and the, the concentrations are high, groundwater concentrations uh, are, are relatively high, and there's uh, yeah. clear exposure through uh, drinking water as well as uh, potential food sources that in those areas. In Queensland, there's quite a few hot spots as well, I think, you know, as well as defence bases, um, Gold Coast Airport, Brisbane Airport. Is there anything else that you're aware of in Queensland that's a particular hotspot? Uh, not that I'm aware of. I'm obviously generally mm. uh, what you've just described is, mm. is what you would find globally. Your colleague, Dr. Rai Kakana, that sat with you at the parliamentary inquiry in 2018, he said urgency is the key word for this group of chemicals. Do you agree that it is urgent? Yeah, so, so Rai is a, is a global expert in this area, and, and certainly he works on a whole host of emerging organic contaminants. And so his assessment that this is among the most urgent, I would agree, is, mm -hmm. is, is true for the reasons we've talked about it, the unique properties, uh, mm -hmm. what we don't know uh, about how those unique properties actually affect uh, bioavailability transport. Mm -hmm. and, and so that's where it is, because there's techniques that we use to estimate the relative mobility and bioavailability of organic contaminants that's really stood up over decades. But the PFAS chemicals just don't adhere to that. And that's one of the reasons why it took so long to, you know, really f uh, for people to understand the magnitude of the challenge. So you, there's a high unpredictability factor with PFAS chemicals? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yep. Because it, there's also differences in soil types, right, that can change the way that PFAS moves or or different aquifers. Yeah, so, so that's absolutely true. And for other organic chemicals, most other organic chemicals, we, we had really good ways of predicting that. And what we're finding with PFAS is that uh, those predictors don't work. So Defence has said it's very site-specific, would you agree? Yeah, very site-specific. Um, and what uh, RISE Group actually did as well is publish a paper recently showing that in highly weathered soils, which are very typical here in Australia, uh, particularly in the tropics like Queensland. The actual mental models of, of how these contaminants interact are, are quite different. What they found was that what happens in these highly weathered soils is you have minerals that have both positive and negative charges, but it depends on the pH. And, and if they're positively charged, then in addition to the hydrophobic sorption, that is absor absorbing to lipophilic components of minerals, there's also a very strong electrostatic interaction. But that would happen at a lower pH rather than a higher pH. But it really depends on the mineral. And I worked on these uh, systems for decades, and um, it's, it's quite complex because it's not just the composition of the minerals, but it's how they're arranged. Where's the hope, Paul, in dealing with this cleanup? Is there really going to be options to clean up, remediate contaminated soil, for instance, in Australia? I know there's some groundwater methods to treat and filter, and we've talked about that. But what about soil? Yeah, well, I mean, there are methods to treat soil. The problem, again, is um, 
if it's an ex-situ method, then you have large volumes of contaminated uh, mm. sediment or soil that have to be taken somewhere. So, uh, so you remove it, you put it in trucks, and you've got to take it somewhere and put it in a cement kiln and burn it? Yeah, you, you could potentially uh, think about doing it. But yes, I mean, that's the problem, and you have these large volume. There's nowhere to take it, though. Like, there's no landfills designed to take well, PFAS that, soil, is there? Well, that would be the challenge, because then you'd be landfilling it, so you'd just be moving the source term and having it become another source, potentially. Uh, so, so to me, you know, the real exciting part is, uh, can we begin to imagine in situ methods, uh, such as bioremediation? So if this emerging data on biological degradation, uh, as we learn more and more about it, what we've done in the past is we've been able to actually um, potentially engineer organisms to uh, be effective at degrading compounds. And, and you would inject those into the soil? Yeah, that's right. Uh, I mean, that's what's done for uh, other organic contaminants, for example. So like the chlorinated solvents that I talked about before, at first we thought, oh, the scientific community thought, no, there's no microorganisms that would break these down. And it turned out that there were. And once we knew that, we could cultivate them, engineer them to be more effective, and actually add them to groundwater, for example, with nutrient sourced. And they were quite effective at biodegrading. And there is some work being done in the nanoparticle um, I think similar to what you're talking about, would I be right? Yeah, that's correct. So zero-valent iron uh, treatment, for example, for oxidizing um, contaminants has is, is, is been demonstrated. So it's thinking about modifying uh, some of those techniques. Um, for example, putting catalysts, looking for new catalysts that could co-catalyze the oxidative destruction of, of PFAS. Can you explain what you just said in a simpler way as well? Yes. So if you think about breakdown of chemicals, um, it's often um, oxidative degradation. So you oxidize organics, for example, and then they eventually just become CO2. Like a sewage treatment plant would use aeration to as part of their treatment process. Have I got that right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Is that what you mean by oxidation? Yep, you could think of that. Uh, and so a lot of these techniques actually use chemical uh, oxidation. And some of that is it's possible now, and it is used, like you mentioned before, in groundwater, but it's quite expensive. And, it, and to think about using that at, at a large scale for soil is, is, is very challenging. One question the residents have, say, on rural properties is there's some that want to leave and there's some that would like their properties cleaned up. All the work has been taking place on other, like, defence bases, airports, etc., but nothing's really being done on rural land do you think these methods that you're talking to me about, they're going to take quite a few years to develop, right, and test and take them to scale? Do you think there's any chance of methods for removing PFAS from these rural areas, these farms that have been contaminated by floodwaters, PFAS in floodwaters? Well, I, I mean, that's tough, these very, very challenging, these, these widespread low levels of PFAS. But I think in that case, it's really looking at what is the risk, uh, because we really don't know the risk. And, and so the, the question is, are we setting levels um, at very low levels because we're managing a risk we don't know? And that's essentially what's happening, right? So if you look at the 70 nanogram per liter uh, drinking water standard that came out of the U.S., well, there are states in the U.S., like Wisconsin, that have gone down to two mm. nanograms per liter, uh, which is... Yeah, remarkably low. And the question is, is there really a risk? Is there a risk at 70? We, we really don't know enough about it. And, and so really understanding the 
ecological and human health risks is going to be uh, critical going forward. I've talked about this in the in the podcast before. Do you see any cleanup options helping these residents, you know, on their land? Who's going to pay for that? Well, again, it gets back to is there really a risk? And if there is a risk, how do we prioritize it? And, and, and the problem is going to be the, these very low level, the, the soils that are contaminated with low levels of, of PFAS compounds are certainly going to come at a much lower uh, priority. I, I don't know what level the soils are, right, for, for people's property, but we do know that, that they've got high levels in their blood, so that had to come from somewhere. There's farmers that use open-air tractors with very high levels. I've seen their results. They drive the open-air tractor. They've got the dust all the time coming in. He attributes his uh, exposure to that. That's just one example. Yeah, that came from the defence bases. Uh, they yeah. might not consider their properties are low, you know, low levels of PFAS. Is there any hope for them to have their land remediated? Scientifically, well, it's it's it, doing large-scale uh, remediations is, is is obviously a challenge. I mean, we're still being challenged with doing more localized uh, r- yeah. remediations. And again, it comes back to who will pay to do that remediation. Yeah, that's, that's correct. Yeah, the challenges with this chemical are not just scientific challenges, but there's economic challenges because the labs charge so much to test samples, um, and then to treat it is uh, expensive, right? Well, that's right, and, and actually, it's not clear that we actually have methods yet to treat very low levels of PFAS chemicals in soil. But the CSIRO has just put out a paper in relation to soil and PFAS. What can you tell me briefly about some of the key findings there? Well, the key findings there are, again, that in highly weathered soils, like the tropics uh, in Queensland, PFAS is more mobile than it is in a lot of the data that's being collected globally that for uh, soils that are less highly weathered. For example, Iowa in the U.S., uh, the soils are not old and they're not highly weathered. And the kinds of uh, data that's being collected there is much different than what uh, our team was finding here. Uh, and that is that they, they don't bind as strongly to uh, the soil. Now, having said that, if pH is low, then it does. So, so there's mm. a. It's very complex uh, yeah. uh, relationship, and and a lot of people haven't considered pH. Uh, so, if you look at a lot of the data globally, then uh, a lot of the studies haven't actually reported pH. So, it's really hard to compare. And then it almost makes you wonder if you've got to go back and re-examine some of these sites and the risks that have been recorded for those sites if you haven't considered the pH. Where, where do you think the areas? of management of PFAS in Australia are lacking? Or what sort of management would you suggest for PFAS that's not occurring in Australia now? Well, it's not so much management, but it's how you approach uh, a research agenda to try to get the science to help solve the challenge. And and my experience um, before coming to Australia in the US and for many years working at a highly contaminated site, and this is true in many areas around the US where they set up research uh, development and demonstration projects. Was that PFAS? Uh, no, but it was the chlorinated solvents uh, that, I, that I spoke to earlier. And uh, it was the, one of the largest plumes in the world of, of chlorinated solvents. So um, as I mentioned, when the chlorinated solvents were first discovered, it was thought that they were going to be very difficult uh, to deal with. Mm-hmm. And they are. They have been. But uh, what, what this demonstration site did was allowed uh, challenge, uh, challenges to, for technologists and scientists to come in and try new technologies. Uh, and while um, the silver bullet's never there, so they never developed the silver bullet, it's still a demonstration site uh, 30 years on, 
where they would have thought that they would have uh, uh, solved the problem. So it's still contaminated? It's still contaminated, but uh, the plume hasn't moved off-site, so they've been able to contain it through coming up with new innovative technologies. But the important thing is, if you look at the innovative technologies that are used globally, a lot of them are actually developed through that demonstration site. So do you think we need demonstration sites in Australia? Yeah, I, I believe that that is, a, is something that we need more of around the world, but certainly in Australia. I think it's, it's a really good path forward because you, you get people focused on a, on a single problem, demonstrating new technologies, and then you try to translate those technologies to other sites. Where would you envision that site to be? Or would it be a defence site? Well, it could. You certainly would want to choose a site where it is heavily contaminated, it's problematic, and there's really no path forward in terms of long-term management. Would that be a good place to start, you know, as a demonstration site? Or is it complicated to use a defence site? Well, so my experience in North America and the U.S., um, actually defence sites had become big, scalable research and demonstration sites. Is the work that you're doing for defence, that you're contracted to do for defence, has that been discussed? Uh, there have been some um, discussions around around that possibility. And to be honest with you, I don't know where that yeah. sits right and now. And no site's been chosen yet? No, there hasn't been any. Mm. The discussions have never gotten that far. If you had to prioritise maybe the top three things that need to happen in Australia right now to get a handle on PFAS, what would they be? That can be anything from policy to a treatment method. What would be your top three areas of focus that you think needs to happen in Australia? Well, um, as I mentioned earlier, really getting a better understanding of the fate, transport, and risks of PFAS at environmental concentrations is a huge challenge because, again, you know, managing a heavily contaminated site is much different than these very, very difficult challenges that we were talking about before where you have much lower concentrations of PFAS. And so, for me, that's, that's really important is to understand uh, how dangerous are these low levels, uh, really, not only to ecological receptors, but to humans. Um, how do they transport, you know, how are humans exposed at these low levels, and then what are the health implications, which, again, uh, we don't do work. Uh, well, we do work on implications maybe, but not so much on, on the actual human health effects. Uh, so to me, that's really uh, an important step because are we spending a lot of time worrying and trying to manage low levels of contaminants that really, at the end of the day, aren't significant? Or they might be, but we don't know that. And so we, we really need to, to know that. Uh, so that would be a high priority. And then and obviously a high priority in the heavily contaminated environments is to think about how do we uh, really advance technologies um, that are less destructive of the environment, economical, and, and yet effective. I've spoken to a researcher that in the podcast, uh, Dr. Brett Turner from the Newcastle University that's done work with hemp plants and they were effective at removing 98% of the PFAS and he's working on um, working on a grant now to advance his research but maybe it's a possible uh, solution for contaminated farms. Yeah absolutely so bioremediation strategies can be microorganisms but they also can be plants and, and plants uh, have been used as well with chlorinated solvents in the past with metals and metalloids uh, phytoremediation, as it's called. So it's using plants to remediate soil. So that is a potential strategy for remediating larger areas. But again, it, what we need to know is which of those larger areas that are contaminated are really pose a risk. 
When it comes to contaminated aquifers versus contaminated soil, which is harder to treat? Uh, well, clearly the soil. Uh, because the aquifers, uh, there's a whole host of methods you can use, if, particularly for the dissolved uh, PFAS that's actually in the, in, in the aquifer. And even if it's particulate, there's ways of, of, of addressing that. Um, so that's a bit easier. Of course, it depends on the scale of the aquifer. But, but a lot of these um, plumes are relatively small, mm-hmm. even though they're highly concentrated. So, so that's easier. Uh, pump and treat, oxidizing the uh, contaminants in, in the water phase and then in the aqueous phase and then returning that to groundwater. It's oftentimes a very slow process, but it can be effective. There's in situ methods if, as the technologies say for zero valent iron, you mentioned the nano, then there's opportunity for in situ uh, remediation of, of, of aquifers. There's ways you can set up what, what are called virtual curtains where you have the flow is actually uh, uh, intercepted, uh, groundwater flow is intercepted, and it, it would go through a technology which would in situ without removing the water actually treat it. It seems like a lot more development's been done around water than soil. A lot more time and money has been sent on water, obviously, because people drink water. They do, and it's and it's an easier problem to uh, address initially. So the complexity of, of soil is that the PFAS is partitioning to soil minerals in different ways, depending on what those mineral composition is. And I mentioned before, it's not just the composition, but sometimes how they're arranged uh, spatially, uh, the pH, uh, ionic strength. There's There's a whole host of variables that really haven't been uh, determined in, in great detail in terms of how it affects the uh, mobility of, of PFAS chemicals. And then it's the volume. It's just the sheer volume of uh, large-scale areas where there's contamination in soil is the challenge, as we talked about earlier. If it's, if it's heavily contaminated, you can dig the soil up and take it somewhere. Uh, but if it's like a farm, as you mentioned um, uh, previously, it's, it's a real challenge. Yeah, definitely. How does it feel to be working here in this wonderful facility in Queensland, which I understand houses the largest group of scientists and researchers working in eco-science ever assembled in Australia? Oh, it's a fabulous facility. It's uh, not just CSRO, but it's the state government, and there's also some university researchers here from Queensland. It's it's just a remarkable um, environment to do environmental research uh, across all scales. So it's all the way from earth observation all the way down to we have individuals looking at ecotoxicology as well as uh, synthetic biology, so engineering organisms for specific outcomes. Also in Queensland, I understand um, Queensland is one of the few states that has banned PFOS and PFOA in firefighting foams. Are you aware of those bans? Does that help your work that those bans exist? Well, it doesn't necessarily help the work, but it certainly begins to eliminate future <laughs> uh, need for future work. Uh, and so uh, we would hope that you know over time uh, these bans would be uh, taken up more widely, uh, not only here in Australia, but, but globally. But as you probably know, the, the real challenge is while um, many Western countries have uh, greatly decreased or eliminated production of these uh, compounds, they're being produced in China, uh, Poland, Russia, uh, at increasing numbers, and, and, and as far as I know, there's no ban on the import of products that uh, actually contain uh, the PFAS chemicals. That's what I understand as well, yes. And they've been used in Australia for some, uh, for many uses, um, medical to electroplating, etc. Yeah. So there's electroplating wastewater that we need to consider here. What's happening to that? I, I do know that uh, Queensland has been uh, 
quite aggressive at looking at, at the problem, uh, including things like leachate from landfills and, and, and how that's going to be regulated into the future. And they're asking a lot of questions that perhaps other states and territories aren't asking. Paul, our time is up. Is there anything else you'd like to add about CSIRO's work or PFAS? Yeah, I just would really like to see a future where science would inform policy in a, in a way that uh, is transparent and to not only to government but also the community. Mm, me too. Well, thank you for talking with me today for the Queensland PFAS Oral History Collection and also for the Talking PFAS podcast. Thank you. Well, thank you. I hope you enjoyed today's discussion. Dr. Paul Birch also spoke at the PFAS inquiry that was held in Australia at the Canberra hearing in 2018. Next episode, I'll be talking with Professor Ian Cousins from the Department of Environmental Science in Stockholm University in Sweden. We're going to be talking about his paper called The Concept of Essential Use for Determining When Uses of PFAS's can be phased out. I've been studying PFAS for over 20 years. I started working on PFAS in early 2000, just actually just before 3M announced their phase out of PFOS and other chemistries. Why did you decide to write this paper? Yeah, we decided to write the paper as a guide on how to phase out PFAS from society. You know, we think that uh, PFAS are a problematic class of chemicals and we previously suggested phasing them out in an international statement called the Madrid Statement in 2015. But then we realised oh, it's a pretty challenging task and it requires more guidance. Why is it important that we look at the essential uses of PFAS? Well, you're asking why the essential uses are important, but I'd say it's more important to focus on the non-essential uses first. PFAS are widely used in society. I don't think the average person has a clue how widely. We recently identified more than 200 different uses and were frankly surprised by many of these uses. And many of these uses appear to be non-essential and can be phased out rapidly. An essential use is where the technical function in a use is essential for health and safety um, and cannot be replaced by another chemistry or technology. One essential use is therefore the use of uh, PFAS in protective clothing used uh, by medical workers, in hospitals and in firefighter turnout gear. What has the response been to your paper so far? The response to the paper has been enormous. I've been spending a large portion of my time talking to journalists and speaking about the concept of conferences and other meetings. Now that you've written this critical review, what's the next step with this paper? What could it possibly lead to? I hope the paper will um, guide the phase out of PFAS, of course, but the paper can be broader than just PFAS. It could be a guide for phasing out the non-essential uses of a wide range of hazardous chemicals. Thanks again for listening and don't forget you can follow Talking PFAS on Twitter. I tweet nationally and globally about PFAS. So the Twitter handle is Talking PFAS and you can also email me at talkingpfas at gmail.com. And remember, all information in today's episode is copyright. Please share but contact me for reuse permissions. Thank you very much. See you next time.